This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you, Susan, for telling me this. This meeting is It freaked me out the first time they put that picture in. Yeah. Who's talking? Oh, my God. What happened? Who's that woman? (laughs) So, welcome to Drinking with Authors, the podcast. Uh, Obviously, the podcast. Anyway, I'm your host, Erica Lance. My co-host today is... Valerie Willis. It's been a while. Valerie's going to attempt to be our guest name. <laughs> no, she's not. I didn't think she would. No, no. It's <laughs> Keith. I know I can say the first name. <laughs> Last name, I'm not so good at D- okay. Candido. Candido. There we go. I was about to do it. Val, you're I'm so embarrassed. Super. Okay, it's fine. <laughs> I I have spent all 52 years of my existence on this earth correcting people's mispronunciations of this name. I hope to spend the next 52 years correcting people's mispronunciations of the name. Um, I love that. And you went, you know what? I'm going to publish under that because that's going to make that easy. <laughs> it's my name, you know. Um, yeah, no, no, there's the, yeah. Okay, okay. Let's talk, before we go down the rabbit hole, let's talk about what we're drinking because I'm ah. super excited about this. Uh, we tell people what we're drinking so they can drink along. Um, I found Kettle One, I'm holding it up for those that are watching YouTube, um, Kettle One Botanical Vodka Spritz. Botanical? Peach and orange blossom. It's botanical. I, I don't know. It sounds like shampoo. That means it has plants in it. Yeah. So it's, so it's got vegetables, so it's healthy. That's, that's it's yeah, healthy. It's, yeah. It's a totally. lot of alcohol and it's... Uh, well, the jury's going to be out on this. I might end up midway through this putting some shots in it because <laughs> it only has 73 calories. Val, what are you drinking? Irish coffee. I introduced her to these things. Which, what, 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 uh, what, uh, what libation have you placed in your coffee? Um, what was it? I just grabbed a thing. My husband does the buy. I don't drink often. So I, I'm like, what do I put in this? And he's like, here. Uh, this this stuff and I'm like okay and then I do the same thing at Erica's what was it a hot toddy I, I don't know what that was but <laughs> I'm gonna on my not I, a I, lot I, of I do not I do not drink unless uh, I'm on the podcast so I get pretty shit well, Irish whiskey is the usual thing just to but um but I'm, I'm reminded. I'm reminded. <laughs> rum in that, and that's what she's drinking is coffee with rum in it. Yeah, it's probably coffee with like uh, Captain Morgan's or something in it. There you go. I, I find myself reminded of a story Arlo Guthrie told one time about when he was younger and he was feeling down. So another mu- an older musician named Ramblin' Jack Elliott gave him something. He said, "What is it?" He said, "Don't worry, it'll wear off." <laughs> yeah. No. It's it's <laughs> okay. Keith, what are you drinking? I am drinking a red wine um, called. Her name is Rioja, uh, which is uh, a play on Her Name is Rio. For those of you watching on YouTube, you can see the uh, retro 80s Duran Duran style cover. Um, I am part of a group who call ourselves The Crew because we couldn't come up with a better name. Uh, the, the group includes several fellow authors, including uh, David Mack, Aaron Rosenberg, um, Ilana C. Meyer, um, and I'm blank, uh, Jennifer Purcell Rosenberg. Um, and the uh, one person you don't mention is going to reach out after this podcast and go, yes. 
Hi, my trouble. Yeah. Um, and and there are some other people who are not writers, but who are in the publishing business or or friends of or spouses of people in the publishing business. Um, but or ex-spouses of people in the publishing business. Anyway, we make our own wine with a with a, a company out in New Jersey called Make Wine with Us, where we pick the grapes and and we help you know do bits of it and then they ferment it for us. Um, we just bottled our latest one, which is a multiple chano called the Full Monte. Um, get this wine. I need this wine in my life. In our lives. We 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 uh, to talk. Uh, if you get in touch with me, I, it, we just we made a limited number of stuff that we ourselves made, but we might be willing to part with some of it for. Uh, a price. Well, oh, uh, well we're going to so get, get in touch with me after the after the recording. Yeah, you know, because so. three point six percent. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. I should have put that mm-hmm. in a couple. We we spot. we as as we record this, we just bottled uh, the full Monty, um, but it probably won't be ready until around the end. The earliest it'll be ready is like the end of twenty twenty one. No, that, that's still. I'm I'm awesome. all about the full Monty. And and that one, the cover on that one is also a riff on. An existing piece of art. In this case, the movie poster for the Full Monty, which you'll recall. Uh, yeah, had, no, that's why I'm saying I'm going to. Well, and except what we use. Podcast. Let's do it. What we use instead of uh, uh, an adult male wearing boots was the statue of Michelangelo's David wearing the brown boots. That is brilliant. That is awesome. The brilliant. first time I experienced the Full Monty was uh, the Broadway show. <laughs> 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 Which was fantastic. Experience. That's what Experience. they're calling it these days. Yes. <laughs> this movie, or are you literally talking about a man naked in front of you in boots? <laughs> the movie. Why does everything I say That's have to be Because you literally started that off with the first time I experienced the full Monty. <laughs> it was the Broadway show first, Justin later. <laughs> Uh-huh. Take your word for it. Oh my gosh. Okay, back to writing now. <laughs> right, writing. Yes. Okay, yes. Keith, for the audience members that are still listening after Val's full Monty story, um, what do you write? Um, uh, words mostly. Um, that's cool. Uh, I suppose I should be more specific. The uh, uh, I am a, a novelist, short story writer, uh, essayist, columnist, critic, comic book writer. Um, pretty much whatever they'll pay me for. Um, the vast majority of my output has been novels. Uh, I've written upwards of 60 novels at this point. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Uh, most of them in the science fiction, fantasy, and or horror genres. A um, couple mysteries here and there. Uh, I recently did a thriller as well. Um, and I've written, God, somewhere between 75 and 100 short stories. Um, a wow. mess of comic books here and there. And uh, more nonfiction than I'm frankly willing to count. Um, for the last 10 years, I have been writing regularly for Tor.com, writing about pop culture for them. Um, uh, I've written, my, the novels I've written have been both uh, in my own universes, including uh, urban fantasies set in New York and Key West, uh, and fantastical police procedurals in the fictional cities of Super City and Cliff's End, uh, including the Precinct series and the... Um, Super City Cops stories. The urban fantasies include The Adventures of Brown Gold and The Tales of Cassie Zukov, Weirdness Magnet. Um, and then I've also written in well over 30 different licensed universes from Alien to Zorro, uh, and also including things like uh, Farscape, Doctor Who, Supernatural, World of Warcraft, uh, Resident Evil, um, Orphan Black, uh, various Marvel superheroes I've written in prose. Um, 
and probably some others I'm forgetting because, you know, I've been drinking. Yeah, so. no, I appreciate it. I saw Supernatural on there. Like, mm -hmm. I was looking because we cyberstalk our guests. Um, well, yes. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's like, why I put all that stuff on the internet is so people can find yeah, it. Well, it made it very easy, really, actually. Yeah. Um, so you have spanned so many nerddoms that I completely <laughs> love. And no, seriously, just a jealousy thing. I'm looking and I'm like, Star Trek, Doctor Who, Supernatural, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm yes. like, how do I get this job? Like, seriously, how do I get this job where I can write for all of these different things that I absolutely love? Aliens, my favorite movie of all time. So I need you to explain in great detail through the, just kidding, <laughs> how I do this. But the, just lucky. I think that's fantastic because writing your own stuff, I think, is amazing and awesome. But being able to write in some of the universes that you love, man. That's that's and get paid for it. And it's not just fanfic where you're like, I wonder if Castile and Dean got together. Like if I hear one more of those, I swear to God. Um, what about Dean and Buffy? Isn't there the new like the shipping of, of those two? Okay. Side tracking topic. Anyway. <laughs> of that is actually coffee versus how much of it is whatever the hell you just made up you put in that cup whatever moving on when did you start uh i started professionally writing in um 1989 um uh writing nonfiction. i was writing articles for library journal magazine and for the comics journal um writing reviews for library journal publishers weekly and a few other uh school library journals some other places um and uh, I wrote very briefly. I had a comic book column for Cream Magazine that didn't last very long. Um, uh, wrote for Wilson Library Bulletin uh, and a few other places. And then uh, finally, in 1994, uh, I sold my first short story. Um, yeah, you guys interview authors all the time, so you know that everybody has their own story for how they broke in. And if you ask any mm -hmm. ten writers how they broke in, you're going to get twelve different stories. Right. Um, Having said that, mine is particularly bizarre and non-replicable. Um, so Ooh, I was... More spritzer. Uh, do tell. More spritzer, yes. Um, so I was working for the late Byron Price. Uh, he was book packager. And he had just gotten the rights to do uh, prose novels and short stories based on Marvel superheroes. Oh. Oh, nice. Uh, this Now, I was I was an editor working for Byron at the time, and I, and I was the editor in charge of that project. And Oh, excuse me. Um, I, and I have to say, just independent of, of, of the writing part of it, that project uh, as an editor is one of the, the things I'm proudest of in my career. Um, between 1994 and 2000, we did over 50 books, both novels and short story anthologies, featuring Spider-Man, the X-Men, uh, Captain wow. America, the Avengers, oh, Iron wow. Man, um, the Hulk, Fantastic Four. And um, they were they were all interconnected. I, I I have joked that until 2008, the novel thing that I did was the largest interconnected series of Marvel stories not told in comic book form ever. And then Kevin Feige went and stole my thunder, the bastard. But um, <laughs> but we 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 unlike every I mean there've been other series of Marvel novels, but they were all standalone. I, one of the conscious things I did was that these novels were all consistent with each other and picked up on themes from each other. And we had recurring characters who were in several of the books as well. Um, 
and and I was just it was it was it was a lot of fun to do. We had some great books in there. Uh, we used both science fiction writers uh, and comic book writers, um, people like Tom DeFalco, Peter David, uh, Anna Senti, um, um, who else? Uh, I'm blanking on all the names. That's okay because the more uh, David McElhinney, Kurt Busiek. The more names you forget, <laughs> the music and uh, and a lot of science fiction writers: uh, Adam Troy Castro, Greg Cox, Dean Wesley Smith, um, Pierce Askegren, a uh, whole bunch of others. And uh, anyway, so we started that project with uh, a Spider-Man novel by Diane Duane uh, and a Spider-Man anthology. And the anthology had we had, we this was all like crash done because it took byron 18 months to negotiate this license wow oh wow and by the time he finally got the license done and had shelled out a ridiculous amount of money to the marvel entertainment group for, to do this he wanted the books out and earning money as fast as humanly possible so diane wrote at at light speed to get her novel done and we put this anthology together and we had the cover done before any of the stories were even done we just did a sort of generic cover you have spider-man in the middle and then four of his villains on, on the four corners. And we had stories with three of those villains. We had the Vulture, Dr. Octopus, the Lizard, and Venom. We had a Duck Ock story. We had a Lizard story. We had a Vulture story. In fact, we had two Vulture stories. We did not have a Venom story. And this was uh, 1994 when Venom was at the absolute height of his popularity. Um, the character oh. had been introduced uh, in 1989, I want to say. Um, and so, and, and by 94 had like, you know, had his own miniseries. He was like putting him on the cover, spiked sales by like 10,000. It was, you know, um, we had to have a Venom story. In fact, Venom was also the focus of Diane's novel. And so we had pitched, God, six different stories from six different authors to Marvel, all of which they rejected. Let me backtrack by explaining to those, to the people listening to this who may not know, when you're writing licensed fiction like this, when you're writing, you know, a supernatural book, a Buffy book, a Marvel book, a Star Trek book, a Star Wars book, whatever. First, you have to write a plot outline that has to be approved by the people who own it. So if, for example, I'm writing a supernatural novel, I have to write a plot outline that somebody at Warner Brothers has to approve. Um, in the case of Spider-Man, I have, to, or Spider-Man short story, we had to write a pitch that somebody at Marvel had to approve. They didn't approve a lot of pitches. Finally, we're at the 11th hour, and, and my co-editor and I, John Betancourt, said, look, what do you want in a Venom story? They gave us a sentence. We didn't even have time to assign it to anybody. I, sat, I went home, I wrote a draft of a short story, like, overnight, um, gave it to John. He completely tore it apart, rewrote it from the ground up, gave it back to me. I tore it apart, rewrote it from the ground up, gave it back to him, um, and that was my first short story sale. It was me and John Gregory Betancourt writing a short story called An Evening in the Bronx with Venom, which appeared in The Ultimate Spider-Man in 1994. Um, oh, nice. So, and that's how I got my first short story sale because Marvel wouldn't approve any damn outlines. Uh, after that, I did a bunch more. Um, working for Byron gave me opportunities to pitch um, because I was working with a lot of people who were also editing anthologies uh, featuring other characters. So I got to do a Magic the Gathering story for one of their anthologies. I got to do a Doctor Who story because it was co-edited by Andrew Lane who had written an X-Men story and another story for another anthology for me uh, where I was the editor. Um, and he mentioned in passing that he was doing a Doctor Who anthology. And I'm like, oh! <laughs> you know? Yes, that's exactly. 
don't forget about me. Yeah, I was I was like Donkey and Shrek. Pick me, pick me. Um, <laughs> and uh, and 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 because of that, I have the completely irrelevant distinction of being the first native-born American citizen to write linear adult Doctor Who fiction. I have to qualify it that much because John Peel is a naturalized American citizen and another American wrote a kid's choose your own adventure thing, a guy named William H. Keith. So, but if you don't count them, I was the first American to write official Doctor Who fiction. Wow. That's awesome. With a short story I wrote in 1996 called uh, United We Fall, which was in uh, an anthology called Decalogue 3, uh, which was published by Virgin. It was the last of the Decalogue anthologies that Virgin did before they lost the license to the BBC. And um, also in that story, in that anthology, rather, was the first ever Doctor Who story by some guy named Stephen Moffat. Um, oh, that guy. Okay. Who, 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 I, who I always thought understood Doctor Who really well and thought always wondered what happened to him. Um, <laughs> no, actually, the story he wrote for that was called Continuity Errors um, and it was a brilliant story. And in many ways, it was kind of the first draft of one of his Christmas episodes. The, the Christmas Carol Christmas episode was very much the same plot. Um, but I remember reading continuity and I was thinking, damn, this is good. And when I found out he was writing for the new show, I was thrilled because it's like, okay, this guy knows his stuff, um, from that anthology. But, uh, so yeah, it just, and, and I kept doing other work here and there. Um, my first novel actually came about because Byron was too cheap to give me a raise. So he gave me a novel contract instead. Um, interesting. That's uh, a choice. Uh, yeah, it worked. Um, <laughs> I, I wrote a Spider-Man novel called Venom's Wrath. I collaborated on it with Jose Nieto because partly because I was working a full-time job and I just, I needed help with the uh, writing. Um, it was uh, a sufficiently traumatic experience that Jose swore never to write ever again and has gone into graphic design and is much happier. So, you know, I destroyed one person's career. That was good. Um, <laughs> I will be the best writer by eliminating all others I come in contact with. That wasn't my intent, actually. And Jose's actually a phenomenally good writer, but he just didn't. It, writing, it's interesting. Right, for him, writing professionally took all the joy out of it. Yeah. It was like it stopped being fun. It became a job. And he just didn't like it as much. So he stopped doing it. Um, and he was happier, you know. So, you know, more power to him. Um, but, uh, but we did that. And then I also did a movie novelization for Tor called Gargantua, which was uh, uh, a, TV, a Fox TV movie that came out in May of 1998. Um, which starred Adam Baldwin as a marine biologist. So you can tell, you know, what a super serious oh, movie this was. That's riveting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was, it was, it was a monster movie um, that, that, that Fox did to cash in on what they were sure was going to be a big craze after the D Dean Devlin, Roland Emmerich Godzilla film that was coming out in the summer of 1998. Um, who knew? Um, most people are thinking there was a Godzilla movie in 1998. That's how um, bad that was. But yeah. You know, yeah. Um, Eyewitness but uh, there was, and it tanked. But um, but Fox didn't know that at the time, so they did. Gargantuan. I wrote the movie novelization, um, which which was fun. Uh, and and it was at that point that I decided to go freelance. Um, I had I had I had a couple of other novels under contract. I did a couple of young Hercules novels. Um, I did uh, my first Buffy book, which was actually also a novelization. It was a novelization of three Xander focused episodes. Um, and I figured, okay, this is this is something I can make a go at. Uh, so I went freelance. I, qu I quit my job with Byron. I still worked for him freelance for a while um, to help pay the bills. Uh, and I was, cause I was still doing the Marvel project and doing some other stuff, but, uh, but I, I cut that back to two days a week. Uh, and then I wound up quitting for unrelated reasons. 
uh, completely uh, due to due to uh, major financial issues. The the company that I that um, did the Marvel books was uh, a separate company Byron had created called Byron Price Multimedia Company, which was formed in 1992, I want to say, um, to develop CD-ROMs because that was the hip new technology at the time. Um, yeah. uh, Byron got in on the ground floor of CD-ROMs and also stuck around long enough to see the utter implosion of CD-ROMs as a, as a, as a market. Um, and it got to, the, and uh, that combined with uh, Byron trying to do web comics in the late 90s, Wow. when the technology really wasn't up for it yet. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was, yeah, Byron, Byron was, was the, that, that most unfortunate of visionaries is that he had a tendency to either uh, be ahead of his time or, or five years behind the times. It was, it, it was frustrating sometimes working for him in that regard. Uh, but he saw webcomics coming, but, but like I said, the technology wasn't there. He sunk a lot of money into that, lost a lot of money on CD-ROMs. And it got to the point where the only thing that was making money for him were the Marvel books. And um so the money that I was making for the company was not paying my freelancers. It was paying like the electric bill. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with that anymore. And I just, I finally just quit in disgust, um, which was unfortunate, but I just, I didn't. And at that point, my writing was doing well enough. I, I had a Star Trek novel under contract. I had a Farscape novel under contract. Um, and I was doing a Star Trek comic book for, for Wildstorm. And I just, it, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth the agita at that point. Okay, which makes total sense. But let's we're gonna go back even further. Uh oh. To yeah, no, we're going back <laughs> further. I have a time travel machine that involves heavy amounts of liquor. Yes. Uh -huh. but, yes. Uh, what made you decide to even potentially go into this realm, like go into books, go into comics, go into? I say this because. You know, now is a different time. 10 years ago was a different time. 20 years ago was a different time. Like, it's a different time period. And, you know, there's passion jobs you end up being able to do and get in on the ground floor of and stuff like that. But something has to start to begin with to go, I'm going to go down this potentially non-paying route. <laughs> you know, it's like we got to, um, you know, talk to uh, uh, Sutter. And he was like, I'm going to go work in gaming. And I'm like, who the hell decides that? Like I, you know, I started playing D and D when I was 14 and I had to color in the dice, but I never went, you know, I could make a job of doing this. <laughs> well, I, I had the benefit of being uh, raised by a roving pack of wild librarians. Um, oh, they're dangerous. I, my, I, they're I, I am a second, I am a second generation nerd, uh, both a second generation book nerd and a second generation science fiction nerd. My parents uh, are science fiction readers and watchers. I mean, they watched the original Star Trek when it was on the air in the late 60s. And they watched, it, they watched the reruns with me when I was growing up in, in the 1970s. Um, and they, they gave me, when I was old enough to read on my own, they gave me um, Heinlein's YA books, uh, Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea Trilogy, The Hobbit, uh, and P.G. Woodhouse's Jeeves and Worcester Stories to read. Um, which pretty much set me on the rather unfortunate path that I'm on now. Um, no, now it's was... fortunate. There were fortunate. moments in time it was very unfortunate. And here's the cat. Hi. And here's the cat. <laughs> making here's the cat. I fed you. What the in hell? The production. Okay. Cat's <laughs> like, listen, you're on a call. I had to stop by. I need. To uh -huh. <laughs> yes, this is this is Kaylee. Hi, Kaylee. Hi, Kaylee. <laughs> 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 on the screen. But 
so you grow up, which is fantastic. I think that's amazing. But when do you go as you're going into, you know, the teenage to adulthood, you go, did you go get educated down this path? What did you do for college and stuff or not? Uh, I, I studied English literature in college, thus guaranteeing a type of poverty. Would you stop that, Kaylee? Um, for those for those listening to the audio version, my my, my cat is is scent marking the laptop, which is making it bounce. So awesome! It's awesome. You should watch this because what happens is you get you get laptop move cat butt, laptop yeah. move cat butt. It's pretty yes, awesome. The, 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 the... Yeah. There you go, Are we cat. done, Kaylee? Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, um. No, I, 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 I loved writing. I always, like, all that reading made me want to be the person who created the stories. And besides the, the stuff my parents gave me, I also started buying comic books when I was a kid, when I was around eighth grade or so. Uh, I started buying comic books and, and collecting them. Did you, um, and, um, because you said you wrote a story, a story, look at words. <laughs> words are hard. It's fine. Words are very hard. Bunch of writers on a call. Let's have words be hard. Yeah. You wrote this story, but did you write anything before that? Oh, sure. Yeah, they were terrible. But um, uh, I wrote an entire Star Trek novel in high school, which has been lost to uh, being on a five and a quarter inch floppy drive and therefore unreadable by any current technology, which is fine. Um, I don't even know where the discs are at this point. Um, and, and I wrote some other stuff here. And I wrote um, stuff for uh, what passed for a literary magazine in my high school Um and I wrote a lot for the newspapers, both in high school and college. That was that was what started me doing the uh, the article, the nonfiction. Um, I wrote reviews and and articles and stuff. Kaylee, stop it. Um, <laughs> now I believe for, it's actually like some tentacle creature behind there that's like, I will take your laptop and move it. It really isn't. It's just a cat. Um, but. Uh, no, I wrote I wrote a lot for for my high school's newspaper, and then when I went to, when I got to college, uh, I went to Fordham University here in New York, and I worked for the paper. That's what it's called, the paper. It was uh, the it was and still is the alternative paper on campus, and uh, I wrote reviews for the art section freshman year, and then at the end of freshman year, I was invited to take over as arts editor of the paper, um, which I did for sophomore and junior year, and then I became executive editor of the paper senior year. This was very handy because it made me realize that editing was something I could do for a living uh, while I, until I could get my writing career off the ground, um, which is exactly what happened. Um, so uh, going to college, besides the English literature degree, helping me uh, in my writing by exposing me to great swaths of, of phenomenal literature, um, I also, uh, I also found out that editing was something I could do and was good at uh, and could, um, and then I got a job working initially for library journal out of college. And then I went to work for Byron, um, which enabled me to like, you know, earn a living up until such a point as I could do that with writing. So. Well, I, I think that's. And Kaylee uh, agrees. I see Kaylee agrees. I think that's really awesome. Um, and I, my question, and then we're going to take a break is, how do you think being an editor affected you as a writer? Because um, there are, you know, it's two very de defined jobs. Like it's, you know, it helps, but they're very right. defined jobs, right? Being an editor versus a writer. And I always am a firm believer that people should edit other people's work 
because it helps you see faults in your own work and strengthen. So yes, and and in fact, that is one way in which it has helped. I've I've editing has helped me make myself a better writer because I look for the same things, the same ridiculous things I see in other people's writing in my own, um, and and I'm less likely to let myself get away with that. Um, so yeah, it and, and it also helps. I still do editing. Um, I'm I'm. Uh, my wife and I are currently editing an anthology that we kickstarted earlier this year uh, called The Four Somethings of the Apocalypse, um, which we're hoping to have out by the end of the year. We'll see if that happens or not. But um, nice. and, and I'm also editing uh, some articles for um, uh, I, do, I, I occasionally do some freelance editing for the Society for American Baseball Research. And one of the nice things about about editorial work is that it's it's something similar to writing, but it uses different brain muscles. Um, but it's still creative and it's a good way to sort of reset my brain when the writing is just sort of completely smashed my brain inside out. <laughs> and um, and it's something that lets me keep a hand and sort of helps me reset the creative muscles in some ways. That's very cool. Did you say baseball? Yes. Base are you a baseball fan? I am in fact a baseball fan, yes. Oh god, you're like an epic nerd, like a nerd all over, like splashing <laughs> nerd, just all over it's the super nerd, sports nerd, it's, it's and sci-fi nerd, and gaming nerd. I'm gonna splash my nerd them all over the place. Yes, <laughs> um, and it's funny because for a long time, baseball was the one thing that I could count as just a hobby, um, because I didn't make money off it. And then I started writing. Like I did, I've I've, I've done the work I've been doing for for Saber, um, and also for I did I did write did some writing for um, a couple of uh, baseball annuals about the New York Yankees. Um, and then I also actually had a column for a blog about the Yankees for about six months in 2013 until they decided they weren't going to pay writers anymore. And then I stopped doing that. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, the, um, yeah, the, the perception that, you know, if you write for a blog, you don't need to get paid for it is one that I don't particularly approve of, but, um, and, uh, and then, you know, occasional editing here and there. So it's like even baseball, I've managed to monetize, which is, you know, Hey, whatever. No, I think that's for the record. For the record, I'm also a martial artist, and I'm a nerd for that too. If you want to throw that in there, uh, he he also wrote a book on the New Jersey Devil. Yes, although that was that was that found that that falls into the science fiction fantasy horror category. And but, we'll cover yeah. that in a. You know what? I know you want to ask questions on that, Val. I can already <laughs> tell this. It's okay. We're going to ask questions, and then Val's going to get embarrassed because of why she has to ask those questions. Oh, he already knows. I know, but the audience is here and oh, they're yeah, that's camera right. going. So well, they already that. know if they listen to the hundredth episode. Yeah. Okay. So well, I am happy to talk about the Jersey Devil, especially since that that that's one of my more recent books, and I had a lot of fun with it. So Okay. Well then we will be right back to talk about the New Jersey Devil and Honey Cummings. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking at me. I almost snorted my I water out. Yet, Thank so you. That was this is the voice of Drinking with Authors. You are at our commercial break, and our commercial is, hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you.
and we're back by the creepy recording. I know it's creepy recording device. So we were about to talk about the New Jersey Devil. It's been like 30 seconds for the audience. So let's talk about the New Jersey Devil. So you, Valerie, actually met Keith at Pensacon. Yes, I did. And I'm sure you struck up the topic of the New Jersey Devil. But Dan Wells started it. Okay, well, Dan Wells starts a lot. Oh, Dan's fault. Okay. It's all Dan's fault. Dan Wells is an instigator. I hope you're listening, Dan. We know you're an instigator. Um, But, uh, so he started the New Jersey Devil. Did he start off with what your New Jersey Devil does, Valerie? Or how (laughs) No, 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 that, that came at the back end of the conversation. And the even back, then, right? I sent an editor to deliver the book because it was too embarrassed to do it myself. You <laughs> brought Keith a book, but you didn't bring them. You sent somebody else to bring the book? I, I, didn't, even, I didn't even get into the fact that a journalist reached out wanting to. This is so, why I bring this up, Keith. Do you see what just happened there? Mm-hmm. So much for her. I'm going to talk about the New Jersey Devil. She's broken now. So let's talk about yes. your New Jersey Devil book. Yes. So. <laughs> okay. So there's a, a series that just started up this, this year called Systema Paradoxa, which is uh, a series of novellas about cryptids of various sorts. Um, this was done in partnership between Eastbeck Books, which is a, a medium press publisher out of New Jersey who publishes my precinct books. Um, and I've done a, a bunch of other books with them as well. And uh, they partnered up with uh, Cryptid Crate, which is a subscription service that is all about various and sundry cryptids. And they do T-shirts and books and doodads and merchandise and stuff relating to, to various uh, creatures. And so I was one of the many authors that they invited to, to write one of the novellas. And uh, I originally pitched something else uh, and they decided they didn't want to go for that. Uh, so instead, I, I decided to pitch the Jersey Devil, which they were initially they were like, well, we didn't want to do a common one. But they wanted to do some of the more obscure cryptids, but they liked my pitch. So they decided to go for it anyhow. Um, and what I wanted to do, and this was actually part of my original uh, pitch that they didn't go for, was the idea that the Jersey Devil actually runs a sanctuary of sorts for different creatures. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. And um, so, and also I, I hit on the idea that the, there isn't one Jersey devil, but there's usually only about one at a time. Um, and as one gets older, a new one is born somehow and, uh, and continues the tradition. And in fact, cause I wanted to deal with the, the biggest set of sightings of the Jersey devil was in January of 1909, shortly after a winter snowstorm. And there were multiple sightings Oh, yeah. uh, reported all over central New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. Like a dog or a cat was eaten or, or mauled. Yeah, there were, there were, there were all so sorts of things. Stuff. People menacing a trolley and, and one sitting in a boxcar in, in Pennsylvania and, and menacing a, uh, a speakeasy and uh, another, or that wasn't a speakeasy, it was, it was a, a bar, basically. It was a social club um, in, I want to say, Trenton. And um, and a bunch of a bunch of other stuff. But it was like all in one week. The 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 more the more skeptical and cynical types uh, think that this was probably at least in some part due to uh, a slow news week and a bunch of journalists getting together to help try to sell newspapers. Um, 
but regardless, there were a lot of reported sightings that week, one in some form or other. And uh, one of the local museums was, uh, well, the Philadelphia Zoo rather, was offering a reward for anybody who could bring them the Jersey Devil. And um, there was a, you know, there were there were all sorts of different sightings and 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 things. So my my explanation for that was that there were in fact two of them floating around. One of them had gotten old and sort of wandered, and his daughter was trying to track him down. Um, and uh, I said it in the same setting as my urban fantasy uh, series, The Adventures of Brom Gold, which is uh, the first book was called A Furnace Sealed. And it's about a guy from the Bronx who is a courser who is hired to hunt monsters and, and track down supernatural creatures and such. Uh, for the Sistema Paradoxa book, which was called All the Way House, I had it be an Atlantic City-based courser named uh, Valentina Perone, who is hired to track down a creature that has been sighted in the ocean off Atlantic City and is scaring the casino, uh, scaring the people in the casino. And so one of the casino owners hires her to track it down. And it turns out to be one of the people who is uh, uh, one, of, one of the creatures that is at this sanctuary that the Jersey Devil runs in the middle of the Pine Barrens. And, uh, and she has to bring him back home. And then we do have flashbacks to uh, when the coursers found out about the Jersey Devil and their little sanctuary. And, uh, and then going back to the origins of the, of the Jersey Devil back in the 1700s. So I, I tried to use as much of the existing lore as possible, but to do a different twist on it. This isn't just a monster. It's, um, it's, it's somebody who is different, obviously, uh, doesn't know where they came from, but is trying to help other creatures like them. Um, and, and the rules of the sanctuary are very specific. If you actually harm people, you're not, you're not permitted there. It's only for nice creatures. <laughs> And, uh, don't eat other people. Correct. Yes. Well, um, I I love this. I got I got to ask, of course, because um, I've now opened my second spritz. Um, do you believe in cryptids? Do you believe they're real? Um, probably not. Um, having said that, I'm I'm I I'm pretty sure a lot of what people have decided are cryptids are probably just people with unfortunate. Uh, mutations or, 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 you know, odd things wrong with them or, or just odd skin conditions or, or any number of other things that um, a less enlightened time considered to be monsters and uh, which we know better now are, are uh, simply odd little uh, quirks of genetics. But um, so I, I, I think it's most, it's more likely that, that a lot of the, the, um, a lot of what is, has been considered cryptids over the years are simply uh, people who don't fit the, the, for lack of a better word, norm. Um, that's my own take. I don't know. You know, no, I, I, I'm, I'm curious because there's so much, you know, um, when you go down the research, which I'm going to ask you next about your research um, rabbit hole that you go down. And mm -hmm. I see you guys both had all the, um, you know, New Jersey Devils. I mean, Valerie's uh, were playing um, poker and sleeping with people. He's a, he's a manager at Atlantic City Casino. Yeah, weird. That um, totally makes perfect sense. Yes. But um, when you're, you know, when you look at things like this and um, the, re the research that ends up being done and did it really happen? Are these leftover creatures from another time and stuff like that that just 
you know, like the Loch Ness, I think my favorite thing right. I learned recently is now they think that the Loch Ness monster is actually a giant blue whale penis coming out of the water. I'm not kidding. <laughs> there is an entire like show that I saw that was like, yeah, well, if you look at this angle of this thing and the way it comes out of the water when it's mating, and I was like, if it turns out that the Nessie, good old Nessie is a giant whale dick, I, I love everything about that. Right there. I just <laughs> the, the the only other thing I, I would I would say is there was a line in a Tim Minchin song called uh, Storm, in which he says that uh, throughout history, every mystery that has ever been solved has been not magic. Um, and you know it's and and I mean the 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 just to give another example, a lot of a lot of the. Uh, legends about vampires are probably from people who who you know either came back from the dead because they didn't know enough to realize that they weren't actually dead that they were just you know yeah. in a coma um and also you know the condition of porphyria which is one that you know uh mimics a lot of the same uh things that we associate with vampirism including uh sensitivity to garlic and you know there's there's lots of other you know, reasonable scientific explanation for things. We just don't know all of them yet. But um, having said that, that doesn't change the fact that stories about them can be a lot of fun. Um, uh, throughout, Also throughout history, we've loved telling stories about supernatural creatures of various sorts, whether it's the Greek gods or the Jersey Devil. So. No, that I, I agree 100%. Um, let's talk about your research. Because you obviously did research. You just talked about a lot of the legends and the dates of a lot of the legends. Yeah. So how far down that research super highway do you go? Because I feel like oh, pretty far. you literally gas up the car, super add gas to it, and just keep driving. Is that what happens? Does somebody have to go, hey, where the fuck are you going? Like, does that? <laughs> no, it was fun. I, I mean, doing research is part of the fun for me. That was... Um... Like I said, I was, I'm a child of librarians. And so, you know, I love doing research, even if it's just as simple a research as watching all the episodes of a TV show so I can write a novel about it. But, um, but no, that's, that's... What a horrible job. Oh, yeah, terrible. <laughs> well, it, can't, well, it depends on the TV show. But, um, but the... Uh, it's, it's, you know, it was... It, it's, God knows there's plenty of, you know, websites out there with, with various uh, accounts of the, of the Jersey Devil. And I made use of a large number of them. Um, I didn't use everything, obviously. I just went with the stuff that worked for my particular story, and 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 yeah, I, and I had to pick and choose because there's lots of contradictory stories too, um, and I had to pick one or the other. Um, so that was fun, you know. That that, but I enjoyed that part. Um, some of, some of the most interesting things I've gotten to do has been stuff because I've done research for a book. My favorite, my favorite research. Uh, adventure yes. was in 2008 i did a uh, csi new york novel Ooh. oh um, so you went and killed people no no that no okay. no that would be that would be wrong um but i i yeah, erica that's wrong. Half, half my novel uh was a case in a medium security prison uh where somebody was killed and our guys have to investigate it and figure out who did it and um the so I got to take a tour. I had a friend who was a correctional officer at the um, Arthur Kill uh, Penitentiary in Staten Island here in New York, 
And so uh, he was able to put me in touch with the people at the Department of Corrections who could arrange a tour. And so I got to take a tour of, of Arthur Kill. And it was great. It was like, because nobody ever writes about medium security prisons, even though they are the, by far the most common prisons. Um, you know, they always write about, you know, maximum security prisons or the occasional minimum security prison. But nobody ever talks about the mediums. And those are, you know, that, that's where, like I said, a lot of the criminals wind up. Um, and it was, it was great. It was really enlightening. Um, learned lots of interesting things. In fact, the most interesting thing I learned was at the very beginning of it. Um, this is the great thing about, about some of these things where you like talk to experts about things. So they give you these oh, little details. Um, when, I, when I first got there, before you even walk in the door, you have to check any electronic devices and any weapons. So I'm giving them my cell phone. And, and I said, so I guess, you know, whenever a cop comes and visit, they have to, they have to check their weapons too. And the guy giving me the tour said, yes. And they bitch and moan about it every fucking time. <laughs> I said, really? Don't they know? It's like, doesn't matter. Every time they're like, oh, no, I don't have to check my weapon. It's like, yes, you do check the weapon. Um, and so I worked that into the book. That is you know, when, awesome. Flack, when Flack goes there, he has to, you know, he tells him, no, no, I don't have to check my weapon. Do you, so you've done a lot of shows. I mean, I even see like you did a Cars novel right a comic book actually that was that was a cars comic but what do you seek these out do people seek you out at this point i mean csi like cars csi like <laughs> and then cars escape over like listen i'm only writing sci-fi and that's the thing like you are you are all over the freaking place like it's, everywhere the answer to that question is all of those things it um Sometimes people seek me out, um, and sometimes I lobby for it. Sometimes I lobby for it, I don't get it, and then later they seek me out, which is what happened with CSI New York. Um, when they first got the license, I was like, please, please, let me do it. And my editor said, no, we're going with Stuart Kaminsky, who is an Edgar Award-winning mystery author, and I really couldn't complain. <laughs> um, but then... Uh, it's Stuart, hard when you're like, fine. Yeah, I would have killed to write a book based on the TV show The Librarians. The person they actually hired was Greg Cox, who was like the most qualified person to write a librarian. Like if I was editing Librarians book, Greg would have been the first person on my list. So I can't complain about that. Um, so in the, in the case of CSI New York, uh, Stuart wrote uh, three novels. And the reason why he wrote three novels is because he did not want to write a fourth. Um, Stuart... Story had never done uh, tie-in fiction before, and he chafed under the restrictions. And by the time it got to the fourth book, it's like, I don't want to deal with this crap anymore. Um, and so uh, Jennifer Heddle, who was the editor, came to me and said, hey, remember how you said you wanted to write CSI New York books? I said, yeah. She said, well. <laughs> You're also going to need to write now. Yes. <laughs> We've got one more in the contract and how'd you like to do it? And I said, sure. Of course, the, the punchline in this was that I'd actually stopped watching CSI New York. But um, <laughs> when I first, when they were first pitching it, the show hadn't debuted yet. It was like, the, there had been like the, the backdoor pilot on CSI Miami, but that was it. Um, and I was really excited about it because I'm from New York and I love writing about New York. Um, if, if you look at, at my bibliography, you will see that I write things set in my hometown a lot. Um, but uh, uh, by the time it came, uh, Jen came to me with the thing, I was like, oh, sure, yes, I love the show. He says lying. Because um, I, I, I really, 
the, the show annoyed me in a lot of ways, <laughs> but um, it was, uh, and, and I had given up on it, but I went back and, and picked back up on it again and I binged it and, and, um, and, and I enjoyed writing about it. It was, as I joked, it was like, there should be at least one person writing a CSN New York story to actually, you know, been to New York. Uh, we talk about that a lot on the show is writing in areas that you're not from and then you don't do enough research on so pretty much anybody who's from there is like what the hell are they saying one of the best compliments i ever got actually was from uh i i did a an x-files short story that was set in el paso texas and uh a native of el paso said i did fine with it that i that i i didn't do anything wrong Everything looked right and felt right, and, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do wrong by his city, and that made me feel much better. Because um, it's it's hard, you know. You don't want to you don't want to just be stuck doing the Google Maps version of the, no. of the city. Um, you also mentioned that you you do a lot of settings in Key West. Yes, why Key West of all places? If New York's your hometown, why uh, Key West? Key West is is one is my favorite place in the world that isn't New York. Um, it's uh, I've been going there on and off for vacations since 1993. Um, and in fact, my wife and I are trying to figure out if it's safe for us to go back sometime. We uh, live maybe. in Florida, do not come back here now. No, I know. Um, right now, do not come back to Florida. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I love it there. And, and uh, I've been wanting to write stories set there. It's a perfect place to do urban fantasy, really. Um, did you, you know, visit I, Robert the Doll? Yeah, did you visit Robert the Doll? Not only have I visited Robert the Doll, but one of my short stories is a riff on Robert the Doll. It's called William the Doll because it's fiction. But um, but the story is called William Did It. It was uh, it was on a website uh, subscription service called Story of the Month Club, which they then reprinted in in one of their yearly anthologies. I'm finally got enough stories together that I'm going to do a second uh, short story collection. Um, of, uh, the first one was called Ragnarok and Roll, um, which came out in 2013. The uh, the follow up volume will be called Ragnarok in a Hard Place. Um, <laughs> I, I very love clever. And because uh, because the stories involve scuba diving, rock and roll music, uh, Norse gods, folklore, and beer drinking. Not necessarily in that order. So well, I'm I'm on board for all of that, but the scuba diving. All of it. Yeah, uh, the, but the scuba diving uh, plays a part in some of the stories, at least. Um, so. No, that's very cool. So, I got to ask you about fans in these being in these universes because fans of um, existing universes can be some of the most delightful human beings and some of the weirdest fucking human beings in the entire world. That what sums has, it up. Yes. Yeah. What has been your experience with that when people come and you've written their Buffy the Vampire Slayer novel? Um, mostly it's been great. Um, the vast majority of my experiences have been completely positive. Um, there are obviously exceptions and every fandom has its nut bar contingent. Um, uh, the, but you know, yeah, that that's, that's part of the job. The, the, well, we Mostly need the weirdest, weirdest that wrong fan experience because then we're going to have to ask you for your books, the weirdest fan experience. So let's go in, into the realms you write for. What is your weirdest experience you had with a fan? 
Oh, probably the the supernatural fan who accused me of getting the gig solely to game my ex wife out of getting the gig. Uh, meanwhile, back in the real world, my ex wife is the one who turned me on to supernatural and beta read my book. Uh, and was too busy working on her doctoral <laughs> dissertation to have even considered writing a novel. So um, uh, both both Marina and I went and corrected that misapprehension right quick. Um, and and the, the, the post was taken down. This was on LiveJournal, which would tell you how long ago it was. Um, but uh, that was that was the most unfortunate, probably. Um, plus, plus, of course, I, I should also mention all the the, the lovely people who uh, came out of the woodwork on Twitter to tell me that I was a complete and total idiot for not liking Zack Snyder's Justice League. Um, oh, wow. Although that was, that was more, that was more for my nonfiction. Cause I, I, the Tor.com or the remade one, the, 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 the four hour director's cut version that, that they put on HBO max. Um, which, you gotta which love Twitter. Twitter is such a delightful place for humans. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was great. Um, and those those are probably the two worst. What about in um, person? Has anybody dressed up as your characters from your book? Not yet. Somebody dressed up as me once. <laughs> why why is Jonathan Mayberry and um Strand have had this too. Tell us about your story. This was uh uh the son of a of a very close friend of mine who is who loves he mostly doesn't read fiction, but he loves the precinct books. Um, he's more of a nonfiction reader. He likes reading like history books and stuff like that. But um, uh, he loves Dragon Precinct and its sequels. And one time at, at a convention in, in the Baltimore area, he showed up wearing the Yankees Hawaiian shirt that I like to wear and a red shirt under it and with hair and the glasses and, and, and all the rest of it. And there are pictures of the two of us together. It was great. You got to love moments like that. I think, you know, people don't realize... Um, how much as authors, it's really neat to meet fans and fans of our work. And, you know, I always throw the gauntlet down for anybody listening that come cosplay is one of Keith's characters. Come do that because <laughs> I think it's a, like it's a severe compliment. But, you know, I see people even being like tentative about going and talking to authors. And I'm like, the majority of them go talk to them. They want to hear what you think. They want, you know, don't go be a butthead, but we want to hear from you. We want to hear that you liked what we did or it impacted you in some way because that's kind of why we're doing it, you know? Yeah. It's, it's harder with literary yeah. characters. I mean, the, the, I mean, just, yeah, you look at, at the vast majority of, of costumes that people do, and it's usually something from a visual medium, whether it's comics or movies or TV shows or anime. Um, just because you've got a visual template, you don't have to, you know, base it on a physical description. Um, yes, you know. but the good cosplayers, I'm one of them, base it on a physical description and not a visual. Because sure. I think, you know, this is my new thing as we're coming out of, well, we're in Florida, so we're not really coming out of yet. But when we <laughs> eventually get out of this realm where we can go back to, um, uh, conventions and stuff like that. I'm, I've now decided, I was talking to somebody about it today. I'm like, you know what I'm going to start doing is I'm going to see what authors are at these conventions on top of the ones. Cause we go as authors and stuff like that. And as publishers, and I'm going to dress like some of these characters from their books and just start a whole trend of dress, like showing up. And being like, I am this person and seeing if they were just stand in line for their book and see if they even get it when I'm standing, yeah. you know, yeah. 
I think that's. And of that's, course, some characters don't have. I mean, like I'm just thinking about the the, the precinct characters. You can't because you'd have to create the the armor. Um, so that would be distinctive because it, it that has a particular look. Um, the rest of my characters. I mean, Cassie Zukov is just you know a tall blonde chick who wears t-shirts and shorts. Um, Brom Gold is a Jewish guy with a dark hair and a beard who wears like turtlenecks, you know. <laughs> it was in the middle of Key West and I showed up with a beard and a turtleneck. No, no, no. Brom, Brom works in New York. The, the one with the t-shirt and shorts is the Key West one. I know, but um, I'm just saying, show up in one of your, your book signings in Key West with this turtleneck. And a there beard. you go. Yeah. That was <laughs> yeah. Uh, I get it now. Yes. <laughs> So when did you publish your first world book of your own? Like you, you created the world. That would be 2004 when Dragon Precinct was published by Simon and Schuster, um, which I thought would be the first of a series, which it was eventually, but the imprint, Simon and Schuster created an imprint uh, for science fiction uh, and original science fiction and fantasy. Um, but then it was discontinued in 2005. And, uh, I was kind of left flapping in the breeze. Um, I think you and others were left flapping in the breeze. When yeah, I mean, at least some people got to finish their, their stuff. And a few of them, they later started up doing original stuff again, but they were fussier about what they were taking and they weren't in Epic fantasy wasn't really in there. They, they were looking more for urban fantasy or, or straight up science fiction. So uh, I didn't get much of a, uh, they weren't interested in picking up the sequel. Uh, eventually it was picked up by a small press publisher uh, in 2011. Uh, then that publisher kind of fell into the swamp uh, in 2016. Uh, and so I switched over to Eastbeck Books, who published Mermaid Precinct and then did new editions of the previous books. Did you? Uh, and they're going to be doing the, the, the subsequent books in the series they'll be doing as well. Have you self published at all? No. Oh, um, well, that was quick. That was uh, no, and, and it's not because I think self publishing is a bad thing. Um, quite the opposite. Uh, you know, if, if you can do it, great. But, but, um, and this is the thing I always tell people who ask if they want to self-publish. I say, go for it. But when, when you decide to become a professional writer, you have decided to become a single proprietor, small business who is in the business of selling your art. If you decide to become a self-published to publish your own work, then you have decided to become a completely separate, albeit related, single proprietor, small business that is in the business of investing in art. And I barely have time to run the business I'm running. Um, so the reason why I don't self-publish is because I don't have the time to do that. I'm too, you know, and, and I don't have the, the, where, I, the time I would need to spend to do all the other stuff I have to do that a publisher does. I would rather somebody else did that. Um, I'm capable of doing it. Um, and in fact, because my wife and I are stupid, we started a small press this year. Um, but we're only going to do like one project every two years or something. And it's going to be an anthology that we think would be cool. Um, and it's probably not going to go beyond that. Of course, I say that now in five years from now, we'll be publishing 12 books. Yeah, I was going to say, I'll be interviewing um, in five years. You'll be like, we have 30,000 books out. And we'll yeah. <laughs> um, so you never know. But uh, because we both, between the two of us, we have all the skills necessary to do this. Um, but, uh, but it's not something I particularly want to do. I'd rather have a publisher do it. Um, I'm happy with the publishers that I have. And, you know, again, also the tie-in work, you know, that, um, that's, that's all, that's all with, with particular publishers. Cause I don't have the money to buy a light to purchase a, a, a publishing license. Um, but the, uh, 
but for my own stuff, I'm I'm happy with my publishers and, and I'm happy for them to do the production work, the editing work, producing the covers, the distribution. That's that's all stuff that I'm perfectly happy to fob off on somebody else. No, totally. And no, trust me, no we fact. decided to create. I, mean, I like I like the fact I like the fact that it's an option now. You know, oh, certainly yeah. the technology exists that it's easy for one person to do it all if they wish. Um but uh, it's not something that, that I particularly want to do. Yeah, yeah as an author, our, our publication company in the beginning of 2020. We still got fairly well, but we decided, you know, to pick the exact time to create a publishing company. Yes. Um, so, one other thing I wanted to ask you is that you created all this, um, you do the comics, you've done the short stories. Do you have a favorite or do you like kind of mincing at all? Because they're very different. Creating a short story, like some novelists cannot do, do short it. stories to save their freaking lives. They yeah. just cannot condense a lot of practice into a small enough thing to do it. Mm. And some people love writing short stories. Some people love writing novels. Some people love writing comic books, screenplays. Do you have a preference or... I mean, the, the one I'm, I've done most of is novels, but, um, well, no, I've actually done more short stories, but I mean, in terms of word count, I've done more novels. I like them all. I, I'm, you know, some stories are better suited to the short form. Some are better suited to the long form. Um, you know, I love writing comics too. Uh, I don't do nearly enough of it. Um, although I enjoy the ones I've done. Um, writing the Farscape comic book was one of my, one of my best professional experiences uh, in my career, partly because I got to work with Rock Neil Bannon who created Farscape. So that was, that was part of the That's fun there. That's pretty cool. But, uh, but even even the ones I didn't do directly with Rockney, because I, I also wrote three uh, Dargo miniseries that I wrote on my own. Um, and honestly, uh, the, I'm really proud of those three, especially the third one. Um, I think Dargo's Quest was some of my best work. I don't know how many people actually read it, but, um, but I was really I was really proud of that one. I think that's that's awesome. Where do you get a lot of your inspiration from for your uh, work? everywhere i there's there's no place i don't get inspiration um uh the the it, it comes from all sorts of different sources i mean the cassie zukov stories i started writing because i kept going to key west and thinking wow this would make a great place for an urban fantasy setting um the brahm gold books came about because i worked for the u.s census bureau in 2009 and 2010 and got to explore different parts of the bronx as a crew leader for the census and that like got me thinking like there's stories I can tell here because when people write stories about New York city, it's usually about Manhattan South of 125th street. Um, the outer boroughs in upper Manhattan are usually ignored if, if they're even acknowledged. Um, I mean, if they want to get really edgy, they might do Brooklyn, but, um, but otherwise, you know, and, and certainly the Bronx is always ignored. That, that, that's been true my entire life. Um, and so I thought it would be cool to write a story that takes place in my home borough. Um, you know, Dragon Precinct came about because of the characters that I had created. Uh, both Tor Torn and Danthrus, the two main characters in the Precinct series, are um, were originally role-playing game characters that I'd done in college and in my 20s. Uh, and I loved them so much, I wanted to do something with them. And I wrote like 414 different terrible novels before I finally settled on the idea of making them cops. And... Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I... the. You know, my, my, what, I, what may be my best novel is one of my Star Trek novels, which was called The Art of the Impossible. That was inspired by a 30-second conversation between Dr. Bashir and Garrick in a Deep Space Nine episode, which made a passing reference to the Batrika Nebula incident, which was never mentioned again. And all we knew was that it was an incident between the Klingons and the Cardassians, 
It was ages ago, according to Garrick, and peculiarly for an incident, it lasted 18 years. Armed only with that, I created a 100,000 word novel called The Art of the Impossible, uh, which I'm still incredibly proud of. I think it's, I think it's one, of my, one of my best books. Um, sometimes the inspiration is an editor walking up to me saying, hey, Keith, I want you to write a book about X. You know, um, one of my most well-reviewed books uh, is a star another Star Trek novel I did called Articles of the Federation, which was basically a year in the life of the Federation president. Oh, wow. Um, and, and my editor came to me and said, hey, we want to do a Star Trek version of the West Wing. You should write it. I'm like, okay. Um, and that's how that happened. Um, and uh, and it's, it's funny because the book sold terribly, um, but it's probably my best reviewed book. It's like nobody bought the book, but the few people who did buy it loved it. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's it. I, I think that's great. And I think it's, I, it's true. I, I get a ton of uh, my writing ideas from people watching. And oh, that's true. Uh, for that matter, the the um, sometimes there's a line of dialogue. My Zorro story that I wrote, uh, which is for More Tales of Zorro in, in 2011, um, I wanted to do the secret origin of Captain Monasario, who's Zorro's main bad guy. Um, and a line just dumped into my head out of nowhere with Monasario saying to Zorro, you see, Zorro, while your mask frees you, my rank shackles me. And the whole story built out of that. Um, Good dialogue. Yeah, that's an epic line. And, and, and from there, like the whole story core dumped into my head and I'm sitting on the bus. And I'm like, <laughs> get me home, get me home, come on, hurry up, get me home. And, and like, I get home, I, I, run, I run to the house from, from, from the bus stop. I briefly acknowledge the existence of my then girlfriend and say, gotta write the story, sit down. And the story jumps out and writes itself down. Um, uh, it was called Letters from Guadalajara, Letter from Guadalajara, which uh, I'm, I, it's, I, I think is one of my best stories. Um, and, and it all came from just, you know, that one line of dialogue and it just steamrolled from there. Um, you know, the ideas come from all sorts of different places. The, 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 the other plot in the CSI New York book I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, the, the prison one came out of, of me want, just wanting to do that. And I knew I had an in with, with Arthur Kill. The other one was I wanted to do a murder in, there was a coffee shop in my neighborhood where I lived at the time where I did a lot of my writing. So I wanted to set a murder there. <laughs> what the yeah. hell? You know, um, you know. Sometimes people, it's as simple as don't that. kill people where you write. We should make yes. a that says yes. That. What could possibly go wrong? Um, <laughs> well, in fact, the place has since shut down. But I'm oh. sure it had nothing to do with that. <laughs> that is unfortunate. Okay, we are near the end of this episode. Um, but we just started. I know. I know. Moments ago, um, I still have one left. I, well, we're going to have a follow-up literary briefs, and we can okay, fair enough. Shots, and besides, there's more wine in the bottle. Oh, oh, yes, love that bottle so much. Oh my god. Okay, so <laughs> what advice would you give authors out there? Uh, finish what you start. Uh, there is, it is much easier to to revise and improve and make better a completed work than it is a fragment, and also. Um, the first draft is allowed to suck. Yes. <laughs> I tell people that all the time. It's not yes. meant to be perfect the first time around. Exactly. Just get through to the end. Just it's keep hard. putting one word in front of the other until you're done. You know, the words don't have to be perfect. In fact, a lot of the words are going to be the anyhow. So just get through, get through to the end and finish it. The ratio of stories that have been started to stories that have been finished is about 8 billion to 0.5. Um, 
Just, <laughs> just finish it. If you finish it, you're already ahead of the game. Um, and then once you've got a completed story, whether it's a short story, novel, screenplay, whatever, once it's done, you can mold it, you can fix it, you can tweak it, you can rearrange it, you can do whatever you need to do to it, but finish it first. I love that. Okay. How should people find you? What would you recommend? Uh, well, if you, just, promotion, so. if you just see, see, search for Keith R.A. DeCandido or just Keith DeCandido on the internet, I'm the only one you're going to find. So, um, but my webpage is decandido.net, my last name.net. It's a terrible website, but it's a handy um, uh, link dump for all the various places that I can be cyberstalked. Um, I'm fairly active on Facebook. I've got both a personal page and a fan page, and they both have the same material on it. Um, so if you, you can just like my fan page and search for Keith R.A. DeCandido on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I have a blog that I actually do update on a regular basis, which is on WordPress. Um, and all of it, like I said, if you go to decandido.net, you can find it there. Uh, I write regularly for tour.com. I've been doing a Star Trek Voyager rewatch twice a week. That'll be followed by a Star Trek Enterprise rewatch. I've already done the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine. I've been reviewing new episodes of the new Star Trek series as they come out. Uh, every six months, I revisit my great superhero movie rewatch, where I uh, talk about the various live action movies based on comic book superheroes. I covered all of them that existed at the time between 2017 and early 2020. And uh, because there's always new ones, I've been, like I said, revisiting the future every six months or so. Uh, I've got, a, I'm going to have a lot to cover at the end of this year. Um, uh, yeah. 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 And what, about, um, what is your next work coming out? Uh, next thing that's coming out would be, um, Oh, conveniently I have the book right here. Woo. Uh, this is an anthology called devilish and divine. Ooh. which is edited by John L. French and Daniel Ackley McPhail. Uh, it's a story about angels and demons. It's um, my story is about um, specifically both uh, a clash, excuse me, between Islamic guardian angels and Christian guardian angels. It's called unguarded. Uh, it also takes place in the same setting as, as Bra the Brown gold books and the, um, and all the way house, except this is with another, another courser, a woman named Yolanda Rodriguez. Um, who I created for the Badass Moms anthology um, oh, and liked her so much I wanted to keep writing her. So um, <laughs> she's actually going to be, she's actually going to be in the next Brown Gold book, which I'm in the middle of. Um, the next thing, the other things I've got coming out, uh, at least one of them I can't talk about yet because I signed a non-disclosure agreement, but it's going to be really cool. Uh, it's going to be a comic book project that I'm doing with Tokyo Pop. Um, and then I've also got the... Um, the next Brown Gold book, which is called Feet of Clay, Feet spelled F-E-A-T. Again, love the puns. And, uh, and then Phoenix Precinct, which is the next book in the, in the Precinct series. Um, my collaborator, Dr. Manish K. Batra, with whom I wrote a thriller called Animal, which came out earlier this year. He and I are shopping around a medical thriller, uh, which is under the current working title of Pigman. Uh, but I have no idea if anybody, you know, that's still being shopped to publishers. And he and I are also talking about a sequel to Animal, which if, if we do it, will be published by Wordfire Press as the first one was. Um, what else? Um, well, you're not busy at all. I mean- No, not at all. Nothing's um, happening. I, I, yeah. I love it. I love it. All this creativity and writing happening. It's fantastic. And, I, and I've got a bunch of proposals out that I'm waiting to hear on, so we'll see. Wow. Well, um, so if one wants to read you, there is there is something to read more than one book. <laughs> <laughs> um there's there's i mean just recently there's all the way house there's animal i also did a uh i collaborated with david sherman on a military science fiction book called to hell and regroup that came out last year so 
Very cool. You have been thoroughly fun and amazing to have on this podcast. Thank you. Welcome. And God, all these different aspects. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Okay. So this has been Drinking with Authors. I've been your host, Erica Lance. And with me today has been Valerie Willis. I almost forgot. Did you not remember your like the one part of the show. Oh, it's even like written down in front of you, like in the lower. No, it's part. not. It's not written down. It's oh, been a while. I haven't had a podcast with you guys in a while. No, I meant um, on your screen. No, I cannot. Why do I drink? I should not drink on the show. Oh my god! All drinking with authors, you have to drink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's on the label. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Well, this has been Drinking with Authors, and Valerie has been the example of why we can't have nice things, and we're working on it next time. Bye. Bye.